Okay, hi and welcome to the new episode of Missing Bits, the podcast for amputees and non-amputees. No discrimination here. Uh, we're doing this podcast in conjunction with Limbs for Life. And apologies for last week missing out because I didn't have a voice. Tonsillitis did that to me and here we are back again. Today we're learning all about a young man from New South Wales. Welcome Nathan from Roos. Did I say that right? Is it Roos? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. It's cool. Roos, yep. How, how are you? I'm good. Um, it's um, a bit muggy down here. It's the type of weather that I complain bitterly about. Yeah, no, we've had a couple pretty uh, pretty crazy warm days here. So Yeah, I've been watching uh, the look temperatures like, up look, there. Looks like we might get a bit of rain, so looking forward to that. So Nathan, Nathan is 31 and he's an above-knee amputee since 2005. Um, I must admit to having to look up Roos on the maps. I don't know New South Wales very well, but Google Maps makes me seem very clever. It looks like you're in a great spot, not just not too far from anything. Yeah, no, it's probably about an hour out of Sydney, um, so it's out of the rat race, so to speak. Um, yeah, it's a good little area, so I've lived there my whole life, so I'm oh, enjoying nice. it there. So you sort of got the Blue Mountains on one side and and the beach on the other side. Yeah, yeah, mountains probably an hour twenty away, and um, sit down down a beach down to uh, Bulleye in about 40 minutes, so can't complain about that. Can't complain at all. Where do you feel more at home, on land or on water? Um, I'd actually probably say on water. Really? I actually had a, actually had a swim down at uh, Ostomy this morning in the ocean. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I enjoy me swimming. It um, stretches me out a lot, stretches me back out a lot, and uh, it's pretty relaxing, pretty peaceful out there. I try and do... Uh, couple of ocean swims every year yeah, um, nice. give, gives you something to sort of train for and look forward to and um, they're usually well well organized events so I try and jump in and do them when I can I've got one coming up in December um, from Bondi to Bronte which is a um, fundraiser for kids cancer project um, and they they do a lot of research into um, kids' cancer, so it's it's a bit of an incentive to to do the swim. Absolutely. Do they have a website that you can go to and look at the information for that? Um, yeah, it's all it's all connected to the um, Bondi to Bronte site, which I think is www.bondi-to-bronte.com.au, um, and there's a link on there to the Kids Cancer Project. And if anyone wants to sign up for the swim, um, you can jump on the website and through that when you sign up you can start your own um, fundraising page Um, and so I think I think it's uh, 250 or 500 if you raise over that then your your entry fees covered um, and everything like that so uh, there's a lot of corporate guys get involved in it and it's a really well well run event. Oh, awesome. So we, I'll, I'll look we, up. We did it last year, so um, I'm looking forward to doing it again this year. Cool. I'll look, up, I'll look up that information once we're done, and I'll put the um, website link for anyone who's interested in the show notes. So all you'll have to do is click on it, and you'll find yourself there. So when, you, when you're in the water, do you are you leg on or leg off? Uh, leg off. I wear a, um, a short blade uh, flipper. Yep. Uh, on my good leg, so to speak, um, and that's that's mainly just for keeping 
keeping me uh, more buoyant. Um, I find if I don't if I don't wear that, that my bottom half tends to want to sink. Um, but because obviously the other leg's not there, uh, but wearing that short blade swim swim flipper or a bodyboard flipper um, levels me out pretty pretty well, right? So yeah, right, good. So I'm I'm told by a mutual friend that you're a bit of a golfer as well. Uh yeah, yeah, I do enjoy me golf. Um, probably lose more balls than uh, the average golfer. Probably I swear a little bit more than I should on the course, but. If I ever lost the ball the after a round of golf, there's something wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I do, I do enjoy it. I, um, I'm a member of the uh, New South Wales EPT Golf Association. Um, yep. it's, a, it's a really well-run organisation. Um, we have roughly about 10 games of golf a year. Um, we play some pretty good courses, and we have a weekend tournament once a year for the New South Wales Open. And we get away to the Australian Open, um, Australian NPT Open every year. Which, when I describe it to people, they said it sounds like schoolies for amputees. Um, so <laughs> I thought, <laughs> I thought <laughs> that's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty fair comment. Um, get away there. We just, we just have a really good time. Um, it's people with all types of. Um, amputations um, and it's really good just to see um, all the people out there enjoying their golf and just having a good attitude around it um, and just listening to their stories as well of um, what they've been through and how they've overcome it and how they got into golf and I know there's a few guys and ladies there that the golf has been a big part of their recovery, um, so it's always good to hear those stories. I, I went out. I went out one time and watched um, Shane Luke play. Boy, that, yeah, one, yeah, that guy makes oh, me yeah. so angry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, he's a very good ball, Shane. He, um, he's playing in the. He's playing in the Australian Open coming up. Um, they've got a few amputees playing against the able body guys in the end of November, so. He goes all right. Uh, him, Steve, Steve Breyer, and White Rolls. Um, they're playing out there at the lake, so I'm going to try and pop out and watch that. Yep. So no, normally I'd start this thing by asking about where you grew up, what kind of kid you were, things like that. Reading your story, though, it's not quite the streamlined story that most of us had. Tell us about when you were seven. Um. Yeah, when I was uh, seven, I was just a normal average kid. Um, I had a little lump on my knee, um, and my mum put her hand on my knee one day and just said, oh, what's that? And I said, oh, it's just, just a lump. She said, oh, how long has that been there? And I said, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks. Uh, went to the doctors. They thought it was a cyst. Um, sent it away to biology, and it come back as a um, cancerous tumour called a schwannoma. Um, and then... It went from there, so I ended up having uh, countless operations at um, 12 months of chemotherapy, um, six weeks of radiation. I had 10 days in induced coma on muscle relaxations because uh, I was having fits from one of the drugs. Um, and then basically after that, um, I had to learn to, to walk again, to use 
use my hands again. Um, so it's a lot of occupational therapy and physiotherapy um, to get over that. But after that, I had a, a lot of issues with um, with the leg itself, um, mainly from the radiation. Um, so my leg ended up becoming shorter as I grew. Um, I got lymphedema in the leg. And then I finished school in year, year 10 and uh, did a carpentry course. And through that, um, ended up in an apprenticeship doing shop fitting. And then just working, my leg uh, gradually got got more and more pain in it. Um, and I had a scan and it wasn't picked up at first. And then probably a few weeks later, I went back for another scan and I actually had a tumour in the tibia, the top of the tibia, yeah. and had grown had grown out, we started inside the bone, grew out and shattered the bone. So I was working with a broken leg every day because yep. the tibia was shattered. Um, so then they tried to save save my leg and put a knee replacement in and a partial tibia replacement. Um, and that all went really well. And I started the physio and the rehab. Um, and then just after physio one day, I, I just rubbed my hand like a long my leg, um, and just under where the tibia replacement, there was another lump, um, which resulted in me having to have the amputation because it was another tumour. Um, so the doctor who did save, um, did try and save my leg, Dr. Paul Stalley, he was he was upset that he, he couldn't save it, but as I had to explain to him, stop apologising because... He did more than what anyone else is prepared to do in the in the first place, and um, in my eyes, he's probably one of the best guys I've ever met in my life. And dedication to um, his patient is just second to none, and um, respect him ever so highly for what he's done for me. Sounds like a good fella. Yeah, yeah, very good bloke. How did how did that going? Because you were seven years old. That's a hell of a lot to go through when you're seven. How did how did that affect, yeah. how did that affect school? Um, I miss I missed out on probably uh, probably eight months of school, um, and I was fortunate to have um, a couple of teachers who um, came to the house after school to to get me across the line, so I didn't have to repeat the year. Yeah. Um, so I was very fortunate um, for that, and then over the years, there's was, there was obviously. Um, a fair bit of school missed with follow-up tests and um, everything like that. But I think it was just being exposed to something like that when I was younger um, kind of changed the way that you look at things and situations. And um, in some respects, you've got to grow up a bit quicker um, to to be able to deal with things. But then in, in saying that too... In, being young, you're sort of you're naive. You don't you don't have a um, big understanding of around what cancer is or statistics of cancer or anything like that. So um, it's it's probably hard on the family because I know you used to have to sort of drag me to get me to go to chemo because all I knew it was was that I was going somewhere. Where they were going to put a drip in me and make me make me throw up for the next two days. <laughs> yes. So, um, but 
when you when you look now at um, the developments in the treatment of that has come a long a long way since then. So yeah. it's it's always good that um, there's hope of improvement. So down the track, people don't have to go through that. Yep, uh, I think I think looking at it the same way and going backwards too, probably 20 years before um, you went through that, the people would have just died. Yeah, yeah, and then the statistics still aren't great for, um, you know, the cancer rates and everything like that, but they are improving, and and that's a big, that's a big positive. And I think a lot of it comes down to um, attitude too. Um, my mum was always very positive and sort of drilled that into me from a from an early age, um, and so <clears throat> if you think positive, then I think I think that's a a big step forward in um, overcoming it. Absolutely. As as a parent myself, I've I've seen my kids go through some bad stuff, but nothing like that. Um, but as a parent, you would do anything to make your kids well. How did, how did your parents handle it? Um, I guess we brave faith on around me, um, and they they were always very positive. Um, but I think behind the scenes it might have been a very different story. Sure. Um, so, and the thing was, um, just being surrounded by not only your parents but um, good people in in family and friends, and um, having people that you know can help. And um, I've got a sister, so there's a lot of people that um, would bring her into the hospital and. Um, things like that. So she was able to to see me and catch up with me. And yeah. So I'm guessing that um, while this was going on, your mum wasn't very well either. Uh, no, she was. Um, she had cancer when I was six, um, and then was in. Um, oh, I overcome breast cancer. Yeah. And then. Um, when I was ten, she she relapsed and unfortunately passed away. Um, the cancer spread spread, and there was nothing they could do. Yeah. How how did losing your mum affect your recovery? Um, you know, I was obviously a big big change in your life. Um, um, it's probably I'd say probably difficult. Um, key key events in your life um, as far as Christmases and birthdays when they're not there. Yes. Um, but yes, you, <clears throat> you sort of just got to keep going. Um, and as like I said before, surround yourself with with good people um, who are there. Um, my my nan and pop. Um, we live with them for up until I was about eighteen. Um, and they just stepped into gear and took over, and um, I'd ever be so grateful for them. Sure. What was your relationship like with your dad? There must have been a hell of a lot of pressure on him. Um, yeah, yeah, there was. He doesn't, he doesn't really show um, a lot of emotion, um, but behind the scenes, uh, you see, he's pretty heartbroken with, um, especially when I. Um, relapsed and um, lost a leg um, 
just see that he'd been through it before, that um, it was obviously going to be very hard for him to to watch it happen again. Yes. Um, so. so I'm guessing I'm guessing that that after the relapse and after you lost your leg, there's there's more chemo, there's more recovery time. Plus, you are now missing a lot of your leg. At what point? At what point did you start to think you were going to make it? Um, well, I was, I was fortunate that I didn't have to have um, chemo after I lost a leg at 18. Um, so I was the way I seen it when when the amputation happened. That that whole area that was affected in the past was gone. Um, and to me, it was about moving forward. And a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, it must have been really hard losing the leg. Well, it sounds funny, but losing the leg was probably the easiest part of um, the whole cancer thing because an hour and a half operation, it was done. <laughs> so, um, it was the, the chemo and the radiation and all the operations and living in hospital for months at a time when I was younger um, that, I, that I found hard. Um, probably the hardest part with the amputation was the phantom pain and trying to get that under control. Um, waking up at you know, 3 o'clock in the morning and I'd put five pillows against the wall and just belt them like they were punching back just because <laughs> I, was, I was in that much that much agony. Um, sure. that's, that's all I could do then. And it took took a long while to get the the phantom pain under control, um, but once once the amputation happened, I was I was had the mentality, all right, this has happened, let's go, let's let's get a leg, let's let's get moving. Um, when it comes to the rehab, they said, you know, try and wear it for half an hour, three times a day. Uh, so I was okay, yep, not a problem get home, all right, let's go an hour and a half, three times a day, let's do this. Right. You know, and um, <clears throat> I, I was a bit of a bastard in some respects if people people said I couldn't do something because of the leg, I'd do it just to prove them wrong. Yes. Even, even, if, I, even if I didn't want to do it, I just, I wanted to um, break down that barrier, I guess. A lot of people... Um, have this image of amputees um, and if they're not exposed to um, people that have lost a, lost a limb, they've got this idea in their head that they lose a leg and they sit in a wheelchair for the rest of their life and get pushed around by somebody and don't work, um, don't really have a social life and that's very much very much um, wrong in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to sort of break down those barriers. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Welcome to my whole life, mate. I had my foot off when I was five, and the worst yeah. thing that someone—the worst thing that someone can do—is tell me that I can't do something. Yeah. Then, then I'll go out and try anything to to be able to do that. Yeah. It's it's almost think, like I think it's, it's almost like they're asking me for a fight. Yeah, and I think if if people see see you getting on with things. It picks them up as well. Yes. Um, and I always, I always say to people, um, you know, when 
we all know someone who just whinges and complains constantly and you know when when you meet those people um, I always just say if you think you're having a bad day go and sit at the entrance to one of the children's hospitals uh, in Sydney for 20 minutes and come and tell me how bad your day is yeah for sure um, because you just you, just, you see um, people going through so much and Sometimes they're some of the happiest people that you'll meet. Yep. Um, and I think I think when it comes to to amputees, kids kids are really good because um, kids are inquisitive, um, and I really do enjoy when kids come up and ask uh, what happened. I, I generally tell them I didn't eat any veggies when I was little. Yep. I was four, and that's why they had to cut it off. Um, <laughs> Kids are exposed to that, uh, which I've seen with my friends' um, children and that when they do actually see another amputee uh, in the street, it's just normal to them. Yes. There's no, there's nothing different about it because um, they're being exposed. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I was always taught that you know, don't stare at somebody in a wheelchair and, and things like that. Um, but I think we've got to have an acceptance around that. And, and the, the kids are going to be exposed at some point. So the, the thing I love about kids coming up and asking me questions is they're an open book. And, and you can yeah. fill that book with so much information and they retain it. And, and, it, and yeah. it becomes normal for them. Yeah, 100%. And I, 100% I, I, get agree a, that. I get a bit, um, I don't get upset, um, but I get a bit concerned for those kids when their parents are always, you know, don't be polite, don't ask, don't stare. The kids are an yeah. open book, and and they are, they are going to stare if if they if they see a cow walking down the street with blue spots, they're going to stare. Yeah, I think I think that the other on the other side of it, when it comes to adults, if um, if I'm in an environment where I'm introduced to somebody through a friend or whatever, and in conversation it comes up, I've, I've no dramas telling them what happened and how I became an amputee and everything like that is um but if an adult comes up to me which i've had in the past and doesn't doesn't even say hello just walks up and goes oh what happened to you yeah that's when that's when i i, I get a bit offensive back towards them that's rude um because it's just rude yeah it is that's um, but, but when it's when it's kids it's just it's great because they're they're just like a big sponge that just absorbs information um absolutely and they're, and they're constantly learning, um, and it's great for them to have an understanding and an acceptance around it. Yeah. So get, getting back for going backwards one step back to the um, the phantom pain, it's um, something that's intrigued me because I've never had it. I've, ne- I've never suffered yeah, okay. from phantom pain, and and it's really interesting talking to people about it and the, and the, the amount of pain that people have. Um, it, it's something that the non-amputee community really will never understand. No, and I, I think the thing with the phantom pain for me is it's not as if you say you've got a sore foot. You can tell yourself specifically on the foot where it is. Yeah. Um, and when it when it happened, um, they told me to stand in front of a mirror and tell myself there was nothing there, and I tried that and that didn't work and um, end up going to a pain management clinic um, and having uh, a few different 
drugs subscribed to me and uh, slowly working out a combination um, to control the phantom pain, which which took a while and it probably took me about seven or eight years to come off the medication. Yeah. And now, now I still get a twitch every now and then, but um, it's nothing like it was sure. was in the past. It's something that I never experienced, and I'm kind of glad, after speaking to people about it, I'm kind of glad that I never did. Yeah. So yeah. How, how was no, rehab? Um, yeah, it was it was pretty good. I was, I was very fortunate um, to have good staff uh, treat me, um, and I did, um, when I could get in the pool, I did a lot in the pool. Um, and I was fortunate to have um, some <clears throat> Adrian Brown, who used to be in Sydney, uh, do my prosthetic um, sockets and everything like that. And the way he used to make them, they used to just fit like a glove, uh, which is which is a is a big thing with um, amputees, as you're aware, um, is having a a socket that fits well. Um, Unfortunately, I've been to another company that couldn't make a socket, and it was a very frustrating time um, in my life because it was about six months there that I was pretty much restricted to um, the activity level I could do, um, which became very frustrating and very hard on people around me. Yeah, it does become frustrating, and you do tend to take it out on those that are closest to you. Yeah. Which, which isn't fair, but um, unfortunately, sometimes that's the way it happens. Yeah. How about work? How how soon did you get back to work? Casual, uh, and then probably twelve, twelve months I was back, sort of full time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just I wanted to get on with things, um, and like I said, having having a leg that that fitted well is <clears throat> allows you to do do um, things like that. You your work and your your activity levels and um, what you can do outside of outside of um, of work as well. Sure, I, I find um, that having a, a good fitting socket um, not only does it, do, do you not have pain, but you gain confidence. So that the, the longer you walk in a good socket, the more confidence you have and the better you get. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. It, it allows you to um, to do a lot more because because of that confidence level being there. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you it, when it comes to, you know, distances of walking and things like that, if... Um, if you're confident you can do it, then um, you will do that physical activity side of things and um, be able to go places instead of going, oh, I might give it a miss because I'm not sure how the leg will hold up, you know. Yeah, that's exactly so right. It, yeah. it, 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 does, it does make, it does make a, a big difference. Yeah, you're not only pain-free, but your, your head's in the right place. Yeah. So what what's next for Nathan? Um, Bondi to Bronte in December. Yep. Um, I've got the Australian 
amputee golf championships in Sunshine Coast in May next year. Um, So looking forward to that. That'll be a nice Um, time for you to be up there playing golf. Yeah, yeah, no, it should be good. So uh, we we always have a good time up there. So um, yeah, that's that's what's in the in the pipeline for the next couple of months for me. So what I've been doing is, is I've been asking people at the end of the podcast um, if they have a motto or something that goes through their mind when they go through the dark times that might be able to help someone else. Do you have something like that? Um, yeah, I, I, I always say uh, keep on keeping on. Um, I play a bit of guitar um, and I wrote a song called Keep On Keeping On this on YouTube. Um, so I usually that's that's usually usually my saying when yeah. when people are people are down there struggling whatever um, I say I just keep on keeping on. Well, now I'm going to be looking up YouTube and getting that link as well. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to be famous after tonight. <laughs> so, yeah, you want royalties now. <laughs> so thanks Nathan for being so open and honest and sharing your story with all of us. And thanks to everyone for listening. And anyone who would like to get involved and tell their story, please get in touch, just like Nathan did. We are people and we deserve to have our stories heard. We just happen to be missing bits. Please rate, download, share or comment on whatever device you listen to for podcasts. It really, really does help to get your stories listened to. Thanks, Nathan. I really appreciate your time and have a great night. Uh, Thank you. You too. And uh, we'll chat soon. I'm sure we will. Cheers, mate. Take care. Bye. Bye.